0: We'll be Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. In a profanation of all that's holy, three guests in three segments today. We'll hear from Treta Parsi of the Quincy Institute on the global implications of the war in Gaza, from the veteran national security journalist James Bamford on Israel's spying on U.S. universities, and from Alberto Toscano on fascism today. Time is tight, so straight into it. My first guest is Trita Parsi, executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and an expert on Middle Eastern politics. He was born in Iran, but his family moved to Sweden to escape political repression. His father had the distinction of being jailed by both the Shah and the Ayatollah. He's got several books to his name, most recently, Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy, published in 2017 by Yale University Press. Here he is to talk about the global political context of Israel's war on Gaza, Treta Parsi. What is your understanding of why the U.S. is so steadfast in its support of Israel? It's not doing any favors to our international standing. The old Cold War verities about communism and Arab nationalism seem totally obsolete now. So how do you read this unquestioning support of everything Israel does?
1: It is really difficult to understand it because I cannot identify any compelling national security interests being at stake here that would justify the position the U.S. has taken. On the contrary, the cost, as you mentioned, to the U.S.'s global standing is massive. I mean, the United States was taking understandable pleasure in how Russia isolated itself through its invasion of Ukraine and how, in many ways, it gave a major boost to the idea of American leadership, particularly in Europe following two decades of sometimes very problematic American presidents from European perspectives. But now the U.S. is doing at least as much damage to its own standing with the position that it's taken. Even if you look at it from a political standpoint, meaning that uh, the president, who in some ways seems to think that the political landscape of the United States is the same as it was in 1990s, as a result, thinks that this is good politics for him, even that, I have to say, does not seem to really work out particularly well, because we've seen how his unquestioning support of Israel, even though the death toll is nearing 20,000 now with more than 8,000 dead children, is such that it is actually tearing apart the coalition that brought him to power in the 2020 elections. Uh, with the Gen Z either walking out on him or at least being split, which he simply cannot afford. So it's really difficult to see exactly why it is that the administration is doing it. So And there's absolutely nothing they have provided publicly that gives an answer to it, except for saying that Israel has a right to defend itself. But very few observers would believe that at this point we're talking about self-defense. Well, the U.S. makes pleas for restraint.
0: We've done a bunch of that in the last few days. Yet they're sending along more 2,000-pound bombs. Are these pleas anything more than PR? The U.S. has obviously plenty of leverage over Israel. What do you make of these
1: pleas? Yeah, certainly the United States has a tremendous amount of leverage. The question is if the president is willing to pay the political cost, as he sees it, for using the leverage. But if the United States wanted to put a stop to this or actually enforce what it says it wants Israel to do or not to do. It could easily do so. It is not doing so, however. Instead, it's making public statements, calling for certain restraints, and then it's acting in the exact opposite way by sending more weapons, allocating $40 billion to the Israelis. So it leaves one with the impression that perhaps this is more of an effort to create some source of plausible deniability for the administration, to be able to Claim later on that it tried to stop the Israelis from doing something that will haunt all of us, but it failed, whereas in reality, even the word try seems to be quite exaggerated because try at least suggests that there's something more than just a statement coming out of it.
0: Well, when you look at this um, unquestioning support, the lack of real rational, even real politique kinds of uh, justifications for that level of support, uh, I guess people will turn to um, the Israeli lobby and uh, Apex spreading around money, which can get a little questionable <laughs> to invoke that. Uh, how important
1: is that factor? There certainly is a factor in all of this, and particularly on Capitol Hill, I think The organization and the lobbying and the campaign donations certainly has an impact that is leading to a situation or help leading to a situation in which you have roughly 12% of Congress calling for a ceasefire, whereas it has the support of 70% of the American public. Such discrepancies don't come out of nowhere. And uh, those factors are obviously very, very important. in in trying to explain it, but I don't think any one single factor explains the full picture. So we're just left with
0: some misunderstanding on the part of our political elite, or they think they're actually pursuing some kind of
1: rational goal? I think for a lot of folks uh, on Capitol Hill, this is just politics, in the sense that there are elements out there who adopt these certain positions, because that is what's politically convenient and and, uh, expedient for them. Others who truly are just completely miseducated about this issue. Uh, And then you have a rising, but still a minority voice within Congress that is really breaking with at least the tradition of the last 20, 30 years and taking very, very strong positions uh, on these matters. They have a tremendous amount of support in the broader generation uh, population, particularly in the younger generation. And I think this is really important to point out When you take a look at public opinion polls in the United States, this is not as much a left-right divide as it is a generational divide. Younger people, particularly people who are not watching the evening news, who are not getting their news from traditional news outlets, the mainstream media, but rather are getting it from social media or direct sources on the ground through social media, tend to have a very, very different opinion not only about the conflict, but also about the role the U.S. should play in that conflict. Remarkably, uh, Israel has lost the support of a large number of younger Jews,
0: uh, which must really be a shock to uh, traditionalists.
1: And that's a trend that we have seen take place already for the last 10 to 20 years, in which, again, the younger generation of Jewish Americans do not tend to hold the same views, do not tend to view Israel as the David versus the Goliath, but rather the Goliath versus David, who are fighting for specific rights and civil liberties in the United States, but then are expected to justify when those same liberties are denied Palestinians in Israel, and who simply cannot square the idea that uh, an an indefinite occupation is necessary for the security of the Jewish people or, or of Israelis. So, And I suspect that that trend is going to be intensified about what is happening in this war again, because... All of the things that people objected to so ferociously and justifiably so in terms of what the Russians were doing in Ukraine, we're seeing that take place on a much larger scale, much more intense, much more bloody than we saw in Ukraine. And how So how can you oppose it in Ukraine, but defend it in Israel?
0: Well, especially since uh, what Israel's behavior is something we have an influence over, we really can't uh, affect uh, Russian behavior that much. Certainly, certainly. We're seeing, uh, and you've alluded to this already, we're seeing on one hand large and durable popular protests, really unprecedented levels of protest against Israel's brutality. But on the other hand, we're seeing these vicious crackdowns on even mild dissent in the U.S. and in Western Europe, people losing their jobs. It's as if elites fear that they're really losing control of this Israel-Palestine narrative. What do you make of this level of backlash or crackdown?
1: Well, I think it's important to make a distinction of what is happening in the United States and what is happening in Europe. What is happening in the United States tends to be more society-driven in the sense that there's campaigns to get people fired, et cetera. There's certainly certain laws in states in which supporting of the BDS movement will cost you the chance of getting government contracts, et cetera, that precedes this conflict. What you're seeing in Europe is more government-led, in the sense that in Germany, you can get arrested for carrying the Palestinian flag. They're trying to outlaw certain slogans, et cetera. It is really a, a, a reminder of a very, very dark passage in European history uh, that seems to be revealing its head again, uh, and I think part of the reason why you're seeing this has less to do with this issue and more to do with the European emasculation. Europe has almost completely lost its leverage and independence from the United States as a result of the Ukraine war. Europe is completely dependent far more so than it was before for American. And as a result, appears to be in a position in which it is taking even stronger uh, government-led measures to put itself and its society more aligned with that of the United States, missing the reality that actually in the United States, we're seeing some very interesting developments and changes in the opposite direction.
0: Okay. And finally, what about a country you're an expert on, Iran? How do they fit into this uh, war picture?
1: Well, earlier on, there was speculation that the Iranians had something to do with this. And both Israeli intelligence and U.S. intelligence suggest that that is not the case. Uh, that doesn't change, of course, the reality that the Iranians are supporting Hamas, have helped and probably funded Hamas as well. It appears to me that the Iranians are, on the one hand, in a bind, on the other hand, somewhat content with uh, how much damage the Israelis are inflicting on themselves they don't believe that Hamas can be defeated. And they believe that the more Israel tries with the kind of indiscriminate bombing it's doing in in Gaza will further and further cost Israel support, not just in the global south, not just uh, in the Middle East, of course, but also in parts of the West, even though uh, it's not as clear right now. And again, uh, an indication of That is, of course, that you wouldn't have to outlaw certain protests in Europe unless there was a major backlash against what Israelis are doing. On the other hand, it's a very risky situation for Iran because if Israel decides to expand the war and go after Hezbollah as well, then that will very likely drag the Iranians into this conflict. This is something that the US seeks to uh, oppose, but it seeks to oppose uh, to prevent this uh, expansion of the war by only putting pressure on Iran and other actors and seeking to deter them, again, without putting some form of pressure on the Israelis as well, not to go in that direction. I was Trita Parsi, Executive
0: Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, one of the few think tanks in D.C. that's not on the payroll of military contractors. Moving right along, my next guest, James Bamford, had an article recently on The Nation's website about how the state of Israel spies in U.S. universities through a joint venture with private interests like APAC and with funding from American philanthropists. It's all quite illegal, but nobody seems to care. James Bamford first became known for his book The Puzzle Palace about the National Security Agency in 1982, and he's been on that beat ever since. His latest book, Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles and Saboteurs and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence, was published by 12 books earlier this year. In a review of that book, the CIA was critical of the author's pro-Palestinian tendencies. Imagine that. James Bamford, Israel on Campus Coalition. Uh, What is it?
2: Well, the Israel on Campus Coalition is very interesting. It's a small little organization in Washington that few people have heard of, really. And it has uh, direct connections to Israeli intelligence. And its purpose is to basically spy on campuses all over the United States. It has people who will send uh, information confidentially to the ICC Israeli campus uh, coalition, on-campus coalition. And uh, they uh, analyze it and they send it off to the uh, Israeli intelligence. So they also come up with uh, ideas and, and uh, techniques to what they call crush opposition to Israel. They didn't elaborate what that is. But all this was discovered when a uh, an undercover operative, uh, Tony Kleinfeld, did a documentary for uh, Al Jazeera. And in that, he posed as a pro-Israeli activist. And that's how he was able to acquire a lot of this inside information from the people who run the ICC.
0: How do they develop their information? Who does the work?
2: Well, they have uh, campus spies, basically, or campus informants, people on campuses all over the country, particularly a lot of the major uh, universities and colleges. And they observe what the uh, pro-Palestinian groups are doing and pro-Palestinian activists. And they report that back to the ICC. And the ICC creates this intelligence briefing, basically, that they pass on to intelligence uh, officials in Israel. And they have a lot of technology. They have an enormous computer capability to monitor millions and millions of uh, online communications simultaneously and, and collect information. All this stuff was uh, described to Tony Kleinfeld by the uh, guy who runs the organization. So uh, a guy named uh, Jacob uh, Baime, B-A-I-M-E. And he uh, fully told the uh, undercover informant that they use this material to crush their
0: opponents. And who finances this?
2: It's financed largely by outside groups that uh, are largely confidential. One of the people that finance this is the person who finances a lot of the anti-Palestinian, activities in the United States. So a lot of it comes from these anti-Palestinian groups. A lot of it's kept confidential because it's a private organization. A lot of it may come from Israel. They said they had a a budget of, I think it was around $9 million or something like that a year.
0: And uh, what relations do they have with um, organizations like Canary Mission or ADL or APAC?
2: Most of the senior officials there, the the head of the organization and his deputy, uh, are both former APAC employees. So, APAC is definitely uh, in the link here. I mean, the heads of the organization came from APAC. And um, uh, what they do confidentially with APAC, who knows, because it's uh, operating very secretly. There are ties to uh, a number of organizations in the United States. They have money coming in from a lot of pro-Israeli organizations. And um, that's why I think this should be looked into. There's a law against uh, acting as an agent of a foreign government. And if you're cooperating, confidentially especially, with a foreign government, passing on information and getting instructions from them, you're an agent of a foreign government, which is illegal in the United States. So... um, I've been after the FBI to look into this. I wrote about this in my most recent book, and other people have written about it. And in terms of their connection to Canary Mission, they allegedly have a connection. Tony Kleinfeld interviewed people that said that they had direct connections to Canary Mission. Now, the organization has uh, denied that, so that's where it's left.
0: Do these people have anything to do with the the doxing trucks we've seen parked around major universities, uh, revealing the identities of uh, pro-Palestinian activists?
2: I have no knowledge one way or the other. I don't think they were involved in the one at Harvard University. That was uh, done by another group.
0: Oh, was it Accuracy in Media that was doing that?
2: Yeah, I think that was it. Uh, So they were involved in that one. Whether they're involved in other ones, again, you were talking about a very secretive organization and that the only reason any information came out was through an undercover investigation.
0: The ties to the Israeli state are interesting. These are nominally private American organizations, APAC, ADL, ICC. But um, they all seem to be at least coordinating things or reporting to um, agencies of the Israeli state. Um, that's a pretty big deal. And uh, nobody seems to care at high levels of the U.S. government.
2: Well, I've been writing about this stuff for quite some time and uh, outlined numerous different areas in which the Israeli government has direct connection with people and organizations in the United States in terms of sort of an agency relationship. And there has never been any charges brought against any of these organizations. I've interviewed uh, FBI agents uh, from street level all the way up to the former head of uh, counterintelligence for the FBI The street-level agents are very angry that nobody does anything about this because they're obviously aware of it. And the people I've talked to are very angry. They say the Israeli spying goes on left and right. It's horrendous how much of it takes place in the United States. But every time they send it up the line, uh, nothing ever happens. And the former head of the uh, counterintelligence was very frustrated when I interviewed him. And he said that uh, they are aware of it. And they uh, do some cases to the Justice Department uh, that nothing ever happened. So uh, that's the story. It's political. You're dealing with uh, an organization and uh, and a government, uh, Israeli government, that gets enormous support, financial and political, from everybody from the White House to the top members of Congress. So nobody wants to uh, upset the apple cart by uh, bringing charges that are going to be embarrassing for the FBI.
0: I'm speaking with James Bamford, a journalist who's been covering spies in the national security state for decades. Now, one of the things that got these folks energized was uh, the Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, BDS campaign, right?
2: Yeah, that was one of the original activities because I saw that uh, the... Israeli groups saw the BDS, the Boycott uh, Divestment Sanction Group, as a serious threat. They were uh, organizing a great many people. They uh, were threatening serious boycotting of uh, Israeli products, and and they were very popular on campuses across the country. So they set up a number of organizations uh, to counter that in the United States, intelligence organizations. I had written about that in an earlier article for The Nation and also in my book in Spyfield about the groups that were set up uh, by Israeli intelligence, basically, to come in and disrupt pro-Palestinian activities. And one of them was Project Butterfly. And that was a group uh, that was organized by an organization known as Psy Group, uh, which stands for psychological group. It was sort of a psychological warfare group. And they came over and they uh, were raising money. Uh, They wanted about $3 million for their activities, and their activities were going to consist of secretly attacking, disrupting, and and, uh, sending out spurious charges, getting people investigated, and so forth, uh, who were pro-Palestinian. And uh, this went on for uh, over a year. And again, the FBI did nothing about that. Uh, This is an organization sent by Israel to uh, disrupt a lawful organization in the United States, the BDS, as well as other pro-Palestinian organizations. So this has been going on, and, and uh, it just gets no uh, traction whatsoever from the from the White House, from Congress, or the FBI, or the Justice Department.
0: Now, having gathered this intelligence on specific people, what do they do with the information?
2: Well, uh, the ICC, for example, passes a lot of that information on to... Um, the uh, Israeli government, which, again, has set up a number of intelligence organizations in the United States to go after these people. Uh, One of the other things that came out of the confidential investigation was the discovery that Israel was also recruiting Americans, particularly uh, activists for uh, AIPAC and other groups, to be spies for Israel. Uh, They hired them to, uh, these are American citizens, and they hired them to work out of the Israeli embassy collecting information on uh, American pro Palestinian activists. One of the people that Kleinfeld, the undercover investigator, interviewed on a hidden camera was a, a woman, Julia Rifkin, who uh, was one of those people. And she said that uh, she had previously been an APAC trained campus activist and that she always hid the fact that she was working for APAC when she was talking to students at the different universities. And eventually she was hired by the Israeli government, assigned to the Israeli embassy in Washington, and her job was to spy on uh, Americans, spy on American activists, pro-Palestinian activists. So once she collected the information, she said, she would turn it over to her bosses at the uh, embassy, and they would send it uh, secretly to the Israeli government, to uh, Israeli intelligence. And again, they would act upon it uh, quietly, secretly uh, within the United States. You know, this is out there, and yet uh, there has yet been anybody arrested for doing any of these uh, activities, acting on behalf of uh, Israel. These are American citizens uh, that... uh, that a foreign government is going after and the U.S. Justice Department is doing nothing about it.
0: And I presume this information just doesn't sit in a file over in Tel Aviv or whatever. Um, do they like, try to mess with people's lives?
2: Um, well, that was exactly the, uh, the uh, reason for setting up a side group. It was to come over here and mess with people's lives. Uh, they had target lists of the people they were going after, supporters of Palestinian rights and one person, for example, they uh, made flyers and they put it on uh, windows of cars all over the person's neighborhood, saying with a picture uh, on the flyer and, and uh, saying under the picture, uh, this, person, uh, is a, um, a uh, this person is a terrorist, this person is uh, somebody that needs to be watched, and so forth. One of them was a professor over at, at Berkeley, and he was shocked. He came out with his daughter to get in his car to take her to school. And on the his windshield and windshield on all the, all the cars around the neighborhood was his brochure. And on these confidential documents that, that got released uh, from Psy Group, it said that uh, they had attacked him and that they were successful and that they had built up a uh, dossier on him. And they had done that for lots of the pro-Palestinian activists. So the document uh, outlining this was uh, the outline for Project Butterfly, which basically said that they were going to get people investigated. They were going to uh, uh, do all these things without letting anybody know that the, that the Israeli government is involved or any of the supporters in the United States uh, giving money to this organization. I mean, another one was uh, they set up a, an organization called Israeli Cyber Shield. Uh, the deputy head of one of the Israeli intelligence organizations came over to the United States and gave a briefing to uh, pro-Israeli activists and uh, said that they had set up this organization called Israeli Cyber Shield. And it uses the best technology that Israel has, uses all the information that they collect. And it's targeted against uh, BDS and other pro-Palestinian organizations.
0: And I'm guessing, with all the activism in opposition to uh, Israel's war in Gaza, uh, <laughs> they're, they're pretty busy these days.
2: Well, exactly right. And again, this was uh, this isn't a rumor. This this was a hidden camera of her presentation in the United States outlining this activity. Uh, and she was the deputy head of the Ministry for uh, Strategic Affairs. She was the deputy head of the Ministry for Strategic Affairs. So. Uh, and the guy that was head of the Ministry for Strategic Affairs, who ran most of these uh, secret operations in the United States, was uh, a person who eventually became the ambassador to the United Nations that's, which is where he is now, uh, Gilad uh, Erdad. So you have the guy that 's the Israeli ambassador to the uh, United Nations, was the guy who was running the uh, uh, intelligence operations against the Palestinian organizations previously.
0: That was James Bamford, author of a piece on the Nation's website about Israel's espionage activities on U.S. campuses, adapted from his book Spy Fail. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Now some of Broken Head, a 1978 delight from Eno, Mobius, and Rodelius. And now Fascism, this year's model. My next guest, Alberto Toscano, is just out with Late Fascism, Race, Capitalism, and the Politics of Crisis from Verso. He teaches at the School of Communications, Simon Fraser University, and co-directs the Center for Philosophy and Critical Theory at Goldsmiths, University of London. There's a lot in the book, and I had to cut the interview down from a much longer original. And there was still a lot we didn't cover in the uncut version, like how black Americans find nothing new about our new fascism, since it's an order that many of them have lived under all along. Fascism is a word that gets thrown around a lot these days, so it's very clarifying to have a sharp historical and theoretical examination of the thing. Alberto Toscano, what do you mean by late fascism?
3: I kind of scrambled for a term, I suppose, to grasp what I felt was a peculiar conundrum that we found ourselves in, namely that on the one hand, we witness a number of phenomena that many people instinctually reach for the term fascism to describe. And on the other hand, there are profound, glaring differences with historically existing fascist movements and ideologies and so on. The term late fascism was in part trying to grasp the way in which the forms of fascistic politics and discourses and arguments that we see in the present seem to be emerging in a situation where the traditional function of fascism for capitalism, fascism is a kind of fix in periods of mass movements, impending or at least possible working class revolutions and uh, systemic crises we're not obtaining in the same way. So late to resonate with that terminology of late capitalism, but also late, like in the the somewhat literal sense, right? Too late to do what it's meant to do for capitalism, so to speak.
0: Fascism is usually thought of in conjunction with a big state, state state-olatry, idolatry of the state forum. But Mussolini spoke favorably of 19th century economic liberalism in a minimal state. This complicates some received notions of fascism.
3: Whilst I was thinking through and preparing some of the book, I ended up reading a really good collection that came out recently in Italian, which was an annotated critical collection of Mussolini's speeches, especially from the, from the early 20s, right? And this actually was in the context of the anniversary uh, last year of the March on Rome, So I read, uh, especially the speeches in the period leading up to the March on Rome. And one of the things that is very striking, and again, goes goes against the grain of a kind of liberal and Cold War common sense about fascism, is the extent to which Mussolini explicitly formulates the fascist program in terms of an armed defense of economic liberalism, right? So it's almost presenting the squadristi, the the, the fascist militias uh, engaging in their violence against workers and against agrarian reform and so on and so forth, as having as their object the defense against the social threat of what he even calls the Manchester state, lean state that presents itself as leaving education, railways, health to private enterprise. Now, of course, Mussolini is a famously opportunistic relativistic and mercurial figure. So one can, of course, move, rewind back a couple of years and find seemingly socialistic elements in the very early programs of fascism. And of course, later in the 1920s and 30s, we have, you know, including the explicit doctrinal definition of fascism as everything inside the state, nothing against the state. And of course, this statolatry, right, which was a, a term that was, was used to criticize uh, fascism itself, comes into play. But I wanted to identify this moment of the use of public violence for the defense of private capital as central to the emergence of fascism. It is not a movement for the establishment of an enormous bureaucratic state of the kind that we see in theories of totalitarianism, I think is very significant. There's very good uh, recent historical work by Clara Maté in a book called The Capital Order, where she actually engages in a comparative analysis of the role of austerity politics in Britain and Italy in the early 20s. And Yeah, she was on the show a few months ago talking about that. Okay, great. So good to know. I found her book particularly useful also, right, to to flesh out the story, including the role that figures who then become very prominent in the neoliberal thought collective, so to speak, like Einaudi have in the early moment of fascism, presented as a kind of violent wing, hopefully temporary, as viewed by bourgeois elites for the establishment of precisely a capital order, right? Let's talk some about the
0: current iteration. Being an American, I can't resist talking about Trump. Mussolini and Hitler had support of big capital. Trump doesn't. Mussolini and Hitler could point credibly to the threat of socialist or communist revolution. That's not here now. Uh, you write some about the idea of a preventive fascism, to prevent that kind of uh, trouble um, for the capital order, but uh, we don't, don't see that now. So
3: how does this Trump moment? compare with those earlier classic instances of fascism. Trump, like in very different contexts, right, uh, a Bolsonaro, the Modi, etc., does find roots, at least in various sectors or or fractions of, of, of capital. And the broader, increasingly far-right Republican movement that is backing him is, of course, deeply linked to all sorts of very well-funded Foundations and and the capitalists behind them, right? Of course, it bears little resemblance to the relationship that a uh, Hitler would have had to particular sectors of of German uh, finance or or industry. I think the question of preventive counter-revolution, which yeah, is a term I drew from Herbert Marcuse and Angela Davis, is tricky. So on the one hand, of course, the social and political movements that we've witnessed, roughly speaking, since the crisis of 2007-8 don't seem to have either the the magnitude or necessarily the forcefulness of ones that were witnessed in the 60s and 70s, i.e. the period that Marcuse and Davis were originally using that terminology for. That said, if not at the material, at least at the psychic and cultural level, Obviously, the far right and not just in the U.S. have been able to profit greatly from a widespread social anxiety by large sectors of the population and what they perceive are a whole set of threats to gender, racial and other orders one shouldn't underestimate the ways in which the rebellions and protests around the killing of George Floyd and, uh, and other social movements in the recent period have also mobilized this farther intensification of right-wing politics, right? So on the one hand, there's something seemingly totally grotesque and surreal and over the top about the so-called culture wars that the far-right trucks in, in the present, there are also indices or, or symptoms that there are widespread anxieties and also perhaps a sense that given the general worsening of economic and indeed climactic conditions that, you know, we might very well be witnessing far more capacious challenges to the ruling order in the imminent period that kind of preventive dimension of fascistic politics still has uh, an attraction. It still has an attraction, certainly in the ways that it's mobilized uh, against immigration. It also has an attraction uh, in terms of the ways it deals with perceived and real challenges to uh, certain orders of identity, you know, privilege, property, and the like.
0: If there's no direct threat to the capital order, there does seem to be, at least from the right-wing point of view, a threat to the white patriarchal order. Exactly. I'm speaking with Alberto Toscano, author of Late Fascism, just out from Verso. I'm going to indulge my uh, Americanism again and uh, talk about the fascist leader, putting that name on Trump, perhaps failure or not, uh, and, and the people around him. There's a narcissism on both sides. The uh, There's a narcissistic identification with the leader who is extremely narcissistic, uh, a Great Little Man, I believe, is that the quote from Adorno? Trump's rhetorical style, his free-associating banalities, utter inventions, pejorative nicknames, whipping up hatreds, had a lot in common with, you know, old, cl- old classic fascism. What about this, I don't know, the psycho- psychological or psychoanalytic angle on the fascist uh, leader and his cult? Um, could you talk about that, those bonds of narcissism and what they accomplish?
3: Of course, Adorno, who you just mentioned and... Um... His uh, comrades in the in the Frankfurt School and in the Institute for Social Research drew a lot from a an essay by the famous essay by Freud on mass movements and the and the analysis of of the ego, which is a incidentally an essay that's published the year of the March on Rome, though it's not in any straightforward way about fascism or certainly not about Italian fascism. Freud in very complex and nuanced argument does present this sort of theater of identification in which the specificity of that mass leader has to do with a peculiar kind of mirroring or short circuit of narcissisms, right? Um, and somehow the great little man manages to enlist the masses in a process of identification where their own narcissism is projected onto his, and in some sense, uh, vice versa. One of the things that is uh, really striking in terms of the Frankfurt School's own relationship to this is, of course, in their US exile, they end up carrying out these research projects, amongst which is one that uh, was recently uh, republished by Verso, uh, and I did a short preface for, which was uh, Leo Loventhal and Norbert Guterman's book, uh, The Prophets of Deceit. Guterman and uh, Loventhal, as part of this broader project that the Frankfurt School had on what they call the American agitator, uh, go and study the basically the transcripts, I suppose, of the, of the speeches of all of these fascistic and sometimes Christian fascists, sometimes uh, anti-Semitic kind of rabble-rousers and uh, agitators. I guess the most famous one being Father Coughlin, but there's a whole number of, of others. And one of the things that of course, many people noted, even before the book was recently reprinted, is the way in which they matched those techniques or traits of Trump so closely, right? One of the traits or devices or, or tricks that they identify is, for instance, the practice of innuendo. The constant suggestion that the the leader and the followers share in some projected or desired violence, but will not necessarily you know, speak it outright, right? You know what I'm talking about. You know, the, the whole notion of the of the dog whistle, right, is very much uh, established in these texts and underlaid by their own psychoanalytic uh, sort of framework. There's something striking in, in reading those texts, how in studying these petty demagogues, often with fairly small followings, Loventhal, Guterman, Adorno, and others find many of the traits that we can see in the present. And in part, uh, they also recognize that there's a deep affinity between this form of demagoguery, agitation, propaganda, and the broader commodity culture in which it's taking place. So the ways in which, uh, you know, and I think Adorno says this at some point, but you know, he's basically also riffing off of passages that people have quoted in in Mein Kampf, right? Where Hitler says something like, selling ideas is like selling soap, right? Like so there's this kind of commodity nature to the brand, the slogan, etc. And I suppose one of the things that's striking about Trump is that he's kind of a natural in this sense, right? Like I think in many ways Mussolini and Hitler were through their own very specific trajectories were people who practiced these techniques, right? You can think of the famous set of photographs that Hitler had taken of himself in various poses so he could practice the most dramatically effective postures. Think of the ways in which, even though Mussolini was also capable of perfectly calm and and reasoned argument, he would, you know, engage in the infamously histrionic speeches, etc. And I think the, the Trump case, and this might also have to do with the nature of his public, is quite different right so you see many of these same traits but there doesn't seem to be some elaborate guile or project behind it there's a much more you could say natural identification or affinity and uh, theater and the dramatization of the narcissism is is far less of the order of the you know more scientific propaganda that people tended to associate with fascism and in that sense He's a lot more maybe like those marginal agitators, albeit on a very large stage.
0: He does fit in, though, very nicely with a a strain of American hucksterism. (laughs) He Mm -hmm. emerges emerges very naturally from that.
3: Yeah, of course, of course. And I think that's also the sense in which then something like uh, that Prophets of Deceit book is is definitely more useful in many ways to understand the phenomenon of Trumpism than uh, many more sophisticated treatments, right, of uh, the politics and ideologies of the far right. The issue of time in fascism. And again,
0: in the Trump case, there's this nostalgia for the past. How accurate a rendition of the past is, is not the question. But we saw in a lot of Italian fascism, the connection with futurism It was very modernist. Trump is anything but. The utopia is somehow um, stepping backwards in time. How do we think about that?
3: I think one of the ways in which classical or interwar fascism can and has been understood and theorized is as a way of confronting societies that were not only undergoing deep and wrenching capitalist crises and were the stage for revolutionary and workers and other movements, but also societies that existed both materially and psychically in different temporalities, right? This is a perspective especially strong in a work like Ernst Bloch, The Heritage of Our Time. Bloch really thinks that fascism or German Nazism, the case that he's uh, inquiring into, is a response to this experience of radical non-contemporaneity, right? On the one hand, you have societies undergoing extremely accelerated industrialization, where ways of life, especially rural ways of life that have been in place for centuries are being upended. And where all sorts of cultural and social and psychic and sexual phenomena are coming to the fore in ways that are deeply traumatizing or unsettling. And so, fascism as a revolutionary conservatism, right, or conservative revolutionism, is also a response to this unevenness. And it's maybe also no accident that. Futurism itself in its both far right and far left variants in Russia as in Italy takes place in context of where that unevenness, right, between industrialization and what, what are still largely rural uh, societies is particularly intense, where you can have uh, this cult of the machine in part because, you know, much of the society is still existing in the 19th, 18th, in some parts 17th centuries. If we think of that, and that was in, in some ways, you know, at the origins also to go back to your initial question of thinking about why late fascism, if we think of the contemporary resurgence of a far right, at least in the so-called global north, it's not either futuristic, nor is it a nostalgia towards pre-capitalist forms, nor is it both as ones, which is what some fascism was as a kind of Archaeo-futurism. Rather, it's uh, in its ideology and its imagination, you could say, deeply regressive conservative in the sense of idealizing the social compact of the post-war period. The trangleruse in France, the, the, the post-war kind of Fordist compact with all of its racial and patriarchal dimensions, about or otherwise.
0: Well, the racial patriarchal dimensions might be part of the
3: appeal, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But of course, the irony is that that is a moment, not just in the US, that presents itself as a moment after the defeat of fascism, right? Yeah. <laughs> as the sort of social uh, reward, right? In different ways in, in Western Europe and in the US for, for the defeat. Of fascism. And so I think, you know, I was thinking also like there's a fantasy and also uh, a sort of propagandistic dimension of this, including the totally anachronistic things like Trump having photo ops with coal miners or or supposed coal miners or what have. And I think that's not just the case in the US. There are all sorts of fantasy constructions of a non-crisis-prone industrial past of stable jobs and stable families, etc., which, of course, involves a crazy whitewashing of all sorts of historical dimensions, which is very powerful in the imaginary of the contemporary far-right, and which also lies in the back of its various culture war obsessions, right? That, you know, in in some sense, we're still living in a kind of long train of the 60s or of 68 and and of everything that was done to undermine the desirability of that post-war order, right? Whether by breaking the heterosexual character of the family or uh, allowing uh, Minoritize or racialized populations to gain political presence or what have you. Right?
0: We're seeing an explosion in the last few weeks of commentary coming from Democrats and their friends in the press, about the risks of a second Trump administration. It would be authoritarian and terrifying. They have no real ideas of how to fight it other than with uh, what we might call a progressive neoliberalism. Now, you say explicitly, you know, progressive neoliberalism is not the way to fight this stuff. But what is a better way? I know you don't really go into this, but any thoughts on uh, with all your um, study of fascism? uh, How does one fight it?
3: How one does not I think is is, is fairly clear, uh, much clearer than uh, how one does one of the deeply damaging aspects of the liberal forms of pseudo anti fascism is ramping up social panic, some of which of course is uh, justified perhaps, but around the impending character of say trump or or other figures in other countries coming to power. And using that, of course, as a cudgel to suspend criticism, including in its most extreme contemporary version, demanding that Democrats or potential Democratic voters suspend uh, their criticism for official U.S. support for the ongoing uh, massacres and ethnic cleansing in Gaza, right? As if the prime issue uh, is the, the electoral one and everything else can be suspended for them the problem is that the the electoral temporality and the terms right of representative politics are just those given the machinery and given the inertias of the of the electoral system if fighting fascism means stopping the electoral victories of a trump or in other places uh, other figures then that kind of lesser evil logic seems to be the only one right it's not like people are going to be able to mobilize a successful third-party candidate uh, in the U.S., or at least that doesn't strike me as being a, a realistic prospect. But the only forms of durable anti-fascist politics have to do both with a dimension of propaganda, pedagogy, and education and all that, but also with the turning to the root causes of, of these phenomena as well, right? Right. In that regard, like much of what a true anti fascist politics would require is not necessarily uh separate from thinking what socially egalitarian politics would require in general, except there's also a risk right uh, the risk of wanting to suspend the struggle against the more prominent features of fascist politics the racism the transphobia, the mobilization for culture war, and to think that, oh, well, you know, if we resolve the economic redistributive issues, then these things will be dealt with as well. And I just don't think that is effective. Part of the problem for me is that the political stage at which these things play out, the presidential stage, the cards are very much stacked against any progressive politics. And in some sense, I probably have more hope for consequential forms of anti-fascism taking place at more local or grounded levels where, you know, people can kind of see the, the consequences of emancipatory politics more concretely.
0: That was Alberto Toscano, author of Late Fascism, Race, Capitalism, and the Politics of Crisis, just out from Verso. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, my favorite anti-fascist ditty, We Don't Need This Fascist Groove Thing by Heaven 17 from 1981. Till next week. Bye. Everybody
3: moves proof Everybody 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 moves roof, roof. Everybody moves proof About the don't all across the land. Don't just sit there on your ass. And love that funky chain dance Brothers, sisters, shoot your best We don't need this fascist fascist crew thing Brothers, sisters We don't need that fascist crew thing Brothers, sisters We don't need that fascist crew thing History will repeat itself Crisis point, we're near the hour
2: down the falls will do no good. But you